Hey, y'all, and welcome to Beyond 1894. It's Louisiana Tech University's podcast. We are joined here today by Dr. Terry McConathy. She is our university's provost, and we just thought that she'd be really interesting to talk to for for this week. So tell us how you got to Louisiana Tech, because you're originally from Canada, right? Correct. I was born and raised in Toronto and uh, went to, did my undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto and started my first career in Toronto, and my corporate moved me to the United States to take up a sales and marketing management job in Tampa over nine states, which expanded to 11 states. And then I moved to Louisiana, married a gentleman from Louisiana, and decided to go back to school. Pursued my first career for a short while and then just determined that it was not really feasible to be married and to be traveling so much. So I decided to resign my position with the publishing company and determined that I really wasn't employable in Louisiana except at Brookshire's or as an itinerant French teacher. So I very bravely went back to school to pursue my master's degree at Louisiana Tech. And the master's degree was in what? In English. Okay. English literature. And so then after that, you started teaching? Is that what you did? Well, interestingly enough, the year that I finished my master's degree, there was a legislative comment or a legislative ruling that Louisiana, or an audit finding that Louisiana Tech had too many of their own graduates. So, uh, when I, when I finished my master's degree, my master's advisor, who was Dr. Carol Tabor, and my husband collaborated or colluded to impress upon me the value of going and doing my doctorate. So I applied and was accepted to LSU and pursued my doctorate in composition, rhetoric, and technical writing. And I had a specialty in engineering and cognitive psychology. Well, so does that mean that you're able to write about selling stuff to engineers? <laughs> Actually, my dissertation was examined the uh, use of rhetoric and the linguistic patterns of engineers as they discuss and produce proposals. Wow. Okay. That's crazy. Interesting. So tell me about how, you know, you gave the the long version of of moving down to Louisiana. Tell us what it was like to be, to grow up in Canada. Was it cold? Well, essentially, I didn't think it was cold because when I grew up, I thought the whole world was like that. <laughs> but I do recall very vividly that Canada was probably among the cold nations who discovered that you need to bury your power lines. I, I remember skating to school. I remember skiing to school. When we would go out for recess, we would play hockey. I, I remember learning how to drive in snow, and I thought it was completely normal. When I first drove in about an eighth of an inch of snow in Louisiana, it was stunning that the entire place closed down. But it was cold, but I really didn't realize it. Uh, I did, in a fit of vanity when I was walking to high school, not wear a hat once, and I froze my ears. 
<laughs> so tell tell me, we've talked a lot in because y'all, Doctor McConathy serves on my dissertation committee. Um, I feel like I have to disclose that she. We've talked a lot about her path to higher education and to working in higher education. Um, why, why higher education? Why have you stayed in higher education? I mean, you had a whole career before this. Well, my, my first career, I had set a goal to move to the main office in New York. And interestingly enough, when they, when I received a phone call from the president of the company offering me that job, I turned it down which surprised me. I, to this day, I don't understand the reason for that, but I did. At the moment when I decided to teach at Louisiana Tech, it was a, an accidental move. It really wasn't a career path that if you had asked me in that year when I came here that I would be here still, I would have said absolutely not. But staying at Louisiana Tech involved the people primarily. The, the teaching was wonderful. I really enjoyed the students. I have students who still contact me. But it's the people, it was the community, it was the accessibility to learning and the accessibility to young people to participate in their development, but also to participate in my growing up in terms of understanding and learning what I am capable of and what I love to do. So you, you, we've also talked about a commitment to education as a whole, you know, and how that impacted your life as well. Well, commitment to education as a whole, in my instance, in, has involved me in working an awful lot with our regional accreditor, the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools, affectionately known as SACCOC. <laughs> but my involvement with that was, I can attribute that involvement to Dr. Renault, who was our previous president. He, he got me involved in going on site visits, accompanying his team, and I became involved, oh gosh, I would say it was before Katrina, so that was before 2005. I became involved in going on visiting teams to other universities, and it just became fascinating to participate in peer review of other institutions, but so much I could learn to bring back to Louisiana Tech. Because when you participate in peer reviews, you're not out to catch people. You're out to help them become better educators, to help them become better servants to students, and to help yourself and your institution to find best practices and implement them. So you, you talked the other day in our meeting about going to Jamaica? Yes. You've been lots of places. <laughs> well, Jamaica, I, I've, I've done, I think, about four trips to Jamaica. Uh, I guess it was about 2017 or 18. Uh, the University Council of Jamaica transitioned from accrediting just courses and and programs to accrediting universities, and they contacted the SAC COC and asked for recommendations of experienced people to come and help them in that transition and to and do the first assessments of institutions. So I became involved in that and fell in love with the people at the University Council and have enjoyed 
learning about Jamaica and learning about how they operate and their whole attitude towards education, which is a little different than we are because they have a little different level of resources than we have. So it has helped me round out that education as a whole concept because the quality of the education they deliver without a lot of the resources that we have become accustomed to is impressive. Where else have you gone to do accrediting visits? Let's see. I've been to Qatar or Qatar, depending on who you talk to, a couple of times. I've been to Osan, Korea. I've been to Shenzhen, China, Panama, Dominican Republic, Quito, Ecuador, a couple of times. Um, I've gone to a lot of other places (laughs) for vacation. (laughs) Where is your favorite? Because you always take a really big vacation, you know, at at any given point in the year. And it depends. Twice a year? I try to. Um, So tell me where your favorite is. Because I have seen pictures of you all over the world on the backs of camels, (laughs) in huts, (laughs) So where's your favorite? I have uh, three that top the list because when I say them, you'll understand how different they are. The top so far is Antarctica. The second is Galapagos. Uh, The third is Mongolia. And I will have to slip in Tanzania. So have you been to every continent? Every one but one. And I'm looking at going to that one this year. (laughs) Which, Which is the one that you're missing? Australia. I can't believe that. I would think that you have been to Australia. Just, I mean, it's not like it's Antarctica. <laughs> Actually, I'm looking at going to New Zealand, and I'm counting that as part of. Ah, okay, cool. You 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 always come back with awesome pictures, and you always come back with awesome stories too. So let's talk about. Um, you know, you talked about the accrediting process, and you talked about being involved in that. Uh, We're preparing for an accrediting process, right? Yes. The accreditation process, the the regional accreditation process, I should differentiate that because several of the programs on campus have subject-specific accreditations, which operate on a different schedule. The regional accreditation, which is the SAC-COC accreditation, is a decennial cycle that has several steps decennial meaning? Ten years. Every ten years. uh, Every ten years there is a a reaffirmation report that we need to prepare, which generally takes, should take, two years to prepare and then takes about a year and a half to go through the process, which includes the off-site review, the on-site review, and then the um, CNR, the SAC-COC board review. Our decennial is coming up in 2025. Our last decennial was obviously 2015, but this year, this cycle is really exciting because Louisiana Tech has apparently done so well in the past cycles that we've been approved by SAC-COC to go through a differentiated reaffirmation in that instead of answering 77 standards, we only answer 40. Whoo. (laughs) <laughs> but we're also, we also still have to produce another quality enhancement plan or a QEP. And if you remember, the first QEP we did produced the bark, and the second QEP produced blue fire, which is the first year experience 
over in Davis and Hall. So what do we think we're looking at for the next QEP? We're in the process of paring down the, the possibilities. Part of meeting the standards of SAC COC for the QEP is you have to have broad-based input. So we've done surveys. We've had, uh, I, I believe, about nine or ten focus groups or discussion groups to involve outsiders, insiders, students, everybody that we can. So it's it hasn't been. It's in the, at the point of being narrowed down to three or four topics. So we don't know exactly, but I'm sure, given the current budget uh, times and the the experiences that we've had with enrollment that whatever we do will have an impact on recruitment and retention. So what is your favorite thing about tech? My favorite thing about tech? That's a tough question because there's so many aspects. My favorite thing about tech is how people come and stay and how students come back and how when you meet somebody on the other side of the world with a tech logo on their shirt, they're still enthusiastic about their experiences here. I've thoroughly enjoyed the faculty, the students, and the the administration here is one of the more collegial administrations that I've, I've experienced in all the schools that I visited. I've done about 24 visits, and I have four more to go. So the tech compares really well in fact, exceeds the expectations for most people in how much we are indeed a family. So let's talk about how your first jobs impacted this job that you do. Like, tell what did you do your first job? What was your first job? I worked in a junkyard. Doing what? <laughs> I put myself through college by working in a junkyard. Now, I was the only student they'd ever hired. So I did everything from stacking license plates to let they let me run the, the crusher where you crush those cars down. And they the, the staff there adopted me. When I graduated from college, I made the big step to work for another junkyard, which was then it was called a tertiary metal company. It had a step up from the local junkyard. And uh, that one ended rather curiously, but then I went to work as a senior secretary at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Remember back in the day, secretaries were secretaries. So, And I worked for two gentlemen, uh, Dr. Wilfred Weiss and Dr. Ken Pruder, who, who were over the Office of Field Development. And Dr. Weiss called me in one day about a year after I had started there and told me that I was absolutely useless <laughs> as a secretary because I kept rewriting everything that he wrote. And I kept editing and I was changing it. And I would give it back to him from the typewriter with all my edits and changes. And he was well-renowned as a, a nationally known writer and educator. He had published books and he, would, he had, was a retired president of a publishing company. So he fired me and suggested that I go along and meet Dr. Edward, who was his replacement at the publishing company. And that then I was, I was hired as the first female 
sales and marketing representative, which was kind of a unique situation because I didn't, I didn't realize that was a phenomenon. So I went to work with the publishing company. And at that time in Canada, uh, American publishers were not allowed to buy or take over companies. When I went to the third publishing company I went to work for, uh, that's when the the economic curtain opened between the United States and Canada, and the company I was working for was bought by Simon & Schuster. And I was at a conference in Disney World, Disneyland. Florida or California? California. Land. Disneyland. Never did see Disneyland. But I. it was a really a bear of a conference. It was a lot of hard work, and I was. we were sitting sort of, talking about how it was over, and one, uh, one of the ladies at Simon & Schuster uh, looked at me, and she said, well, what would it take for you to come work for us? And I just threw off, oh, just make me an offer I can't refuse, and I'll be darned if she didn't. <laughs> and so they, they moved me to Tampa from Toronto, and I started working for them as the regional marketing manager. And the experience I got in that was being a regional manager is essentially running your own business. So you get to understand a lot of the processes of business and interacting with corporate from it. It was the original working from home that we've experienced lately. But I think coming to Louisiana Tech, I, I accidentally got, was in a circumstance where all of that corporate work and that independent work and knowledge helped the helped in a situation that uh, solved some problems and I became involved in activities outside of the department where I was located and I had been working with the uh, Institute for Micromanufacturing in the physics department writing grants so I I had the unique experience back in those days of working outside of the silos so I became involved in a broader and broader circles that inadvert inadvertently but inevitably led me to more and more responsible positions. So tell me how, you know, you talked about silos and silos in higher education are notorious. I mean, we joke about those all the time. Um, how did our professors react when you were breaking down silos? And I'm doing air quotes here. So, Well, the first instance where I, I, I sensed a different approach was in the, day, in the days when I came here, when new faculty were introduced at the fall meeting, they read the title of your dissertation. And my dissertation had words in it that weren't typical of an English department faculty member, like engineering and proposals, et cetera, and rhetoric. So it piqued the interest of a couple of people in engineering. They came up to me and talked to me about, would I help them write a grant for a new physics lab, or would I please help work with the engineers who were developing this interesting concept for a new building in micromanufacturing? And I, I received a unique appointment for a res as a research fellow, where I was 
part-time in the English department and part-time working over as the research fellow. And it was a very unusual situation because uh, people who were traditionalists didn't really understand how an English teacher would be compatible with engineering. So I, in essence, I don't think my area of expertise was well known. There were only three institutions in the United States who offered the degree that I had. So it was just a, a very nascent specialty. So technical writing was in its infancy. infancy. Yes. And what I think is interesting about that is that you're talking about collaboration and interdisciplinary work before we were known for interdisciplinary work. So tell me how you try to help faculty achieve that even now, because it's even now hard, right? It's hard. We have some excellent examples now. We have the VISTA program. We have Kurt St. Amand, who's doing remarkable work. Uh, we have the uh, anatomy lab. There are all sorts of areas that what I would like to see, and I'm not sure I'm doing as efficient a job as I should, but to get the deans talking to each The deans here are very collaborative and very collegial. The associate deans are as well, and I think we need to give our faculty every opportunity that we can to sit in the same room, or maybe on the same Zoom, but preferably in the same room, and start conversations. And it's remarkable how you can see people's faces light up and these ideas, they start, the, they just generally connect on their own. Providing those opportunities is essential, and sometimes it's difficult because of teaching loads, because of other responsibilities. If you're working for tenure, sometimes it's a little distracting and intrusive, but I think it's so important because it adds such a richness and a depth to the faculty experience, but also to the student experience. So how do we work at getting, that, getting those opportunities, creating those opportunities? How do we do that? We have to absolutely make time. We have to absolutely make sure that there is some sort of recognition, there is some sort of encouragement, some sort of acknowledgement that this is very worth a person's commitment and worth a person's time and effort. And I think if one looks at the research opportunities, the work that uh, Dr. Ramachandran and Dr. Dua, the work that they do, a lot of the funding agencies require inter interwoven activities where they provide money for the faculty to interact, but they also require that students be involved in it. And I think students are, are the genesis. I think they're the spark that will get the faculty going in interdisciplinary research because look at the curricula that we're doing. It, it's becoming more and more flexible, more and more meshed together. It's very difficult to distinguish a lot of our specialties and say, well, you're only going to do bench research or you're only going to study the English language or you're only going to study interior design. I think it's inevitable. Well, there are so many newer programs that are not focused specifically on one, you know, like you talked about VISTA. You talked about the the virtual anatomy lab and, and things like that. It's not any one specific thing that that these things are going to benefit. VISTA, it's the visual integration 
through art, you know, of science through art. Science can be lots of different things. It can be health science. It can be, you know, creating human science, human science illustrations for textbooks and things like that. You know, one of the things that is in my research is the idea that people have trouble making sense of things if resources are limited. And, it, and it's also language, I think, in many, many, many instances restricts our understanding because if you we all, all just, we have to do is to look at the word cyber. You know, cyber was a big thing. It is a big thing, and it was groundbreaking when we were the first to have a cyber degree. But do, do people really generally understand what the word cyber represents? And if you look several years ago, STEM became the big, then it became STEAM. And then they ran out of letters because they were running out of things to add to it. But... <laughs> Uh, I think language restricts us in many ways because if we don't learn the language of interdisciplinary work, if we don't learn the language of another discipline, we're not going to be able to present that in a coherent way to other faculty or to students or to funding agencies. So I think it's really, really important to get people talking where they can hear language that broadens their horizons and helps them understand well, what what you do, because my reading your dissertation mm-hmm. has educated me, and I think I've educated you a little mm-hmm. bit about language. So that's because we have been sitting down across a table and talking to each other. Absolutely. It's a collaboration. Mm-hmm. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. McConaughey, I thank you so much for being in the studio with us today and talking about your journey, your experience, and um, how we can break down those silos in order to make our university even better. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Beyond 1894. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about this episode, check out our show notes. Beyond 1894 is produced by Louisiana Tech University's Office of University Communications.